Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of the e-commerce evolution podcast. I'm your host, Brett Curry, CEO of OMG Commerce. And today we are going to talk big picture. We're going to provide some information that I think will be helpful, maybe a little bit scary as well, but I think overall uh, positive. So we're going to be talking about the state of the economy, state of e-commerce, and what you should be doing right now and for the rest of the year to ensure success and growth for your D2C brand. I've got the man, the myth, the legend, Jeremy Horowitz on the, the podcast today. And, and Jeremy is a guy that I've known for a long time now. He used to run a podcast. I was on that podcast and he was on this podcast ages ago as well. Uh, but now he's a senior partner marketing manager at Gorgeous. Gorgeous is a, a much beloved partner of OMG Commerce. And so we'll talk more about Gorgeous as we go. But uh, Jeremy, I've, I've recently discovered, is an amazing follow on LinkedIn. He's writing some really thought-provoking items. And, and so as I was reading his stuff, I was like, Jeremy, you got to get on the podcast and talk about this stuff. And so here he is. So Jeremy, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? And uh, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. I am doing awesome. Uh, I think it's our fourth podcast we've done over the it's years. Really so we're excited to dive that in. Yeah. Um, I have no idea I'm going to live up to that intro, so I hope I can really deliver on all the key points. But uh, yeah, I'm really excited to dive in. Um, it really just came out of, at Gorgeous, we were analyzing data across 11,000 merchants. Past couple of years, I've just been scratching my head of like everybody saying all these crazy things should and shouldn't be happening. Looking at a bunch of brands that I work with both through Gorgeous and personally, it was like, is this actually happening? And most of the time it's almost never matching up. So I just started studying a lot of like a lot of the data across all of our merchants. And then I started studying like the, the public filings of your Shopify's, PayPal's, Meta's, uh, just to see what's going on. Because essentially when you aggregate all e-commerce up into hundreds of thousands, millions of brands, we're essentially the digital economy. Like we that's reflected in those earnings. And so I've just been kind of trying to just read the tea leaves and figure out like, are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? How bad is inflation? How good is inflation? How has that impacted e-commerce? Where is e-commerce on its growth trend? And like, I'm sure we'll dive into all of those things, but yeah, basically just like everybody else, just like trying to just combine as many and try and get as many points as possible to figure out like what is actually going and what can we tactically do to just keep moving through all these just unprecedented times that candidly have been enough. I'm, I'm ready for some uh, from normal times and some un, non-unprecedented times for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And I, I love the way you unpack that. And then that's exactly what we're going to dive into on this show, right? Making sense of some of the broader macroeconomic issues that are taking place. And, and just a, a, a quick caveat, I'm not an economist. Jeremy's not an economist, but Jeremy's a really smart dude. And so we're going to be diving into this because we want to kind of get a, a pretty good picture of what's actually happening where things headed so that we know what to do and we know how to grow our business. We know how to keep pushing forward and take care of our teams and our clients and our customers and, and all of those things. And so, uh, yeah, because, you, you know, I pay attention to the news a lot as well. And we're talking about this before we record. You know, sometimes I hear things like, hey, something worse than a depression is on the way. Right. And I'm like, oh, no, that sounds terrible. And then I, listen, I read something else and they're like, it's going to be a soft landing. Nothing to see here. Nothing to worry about, right? Economy is up and to the right. Everything is great. Um, you know, inflation is not bad. Don't worry about it. Uh, we're in a recession. We're not in a recession. Just all this stuff. And and yeah, to your point as well, we've had like unprecedented year after unprecedented year, right? Pandemic, totally unprecedented. 
Then we had supply chain issues caused by the pandemic. And now inflation. It's just like one year after another, it's stuff we haven't dealt with before. So yeah, I would I would I would take some some normalcy if you would dial that up, Jeremy. I would totally I would totally take that. What does that even mean anymore? <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. We wouldn't know what to do with ourselves if things were quote unquote normal. But here we are. And no sense in wishing for something other than what is, right? Let's just get after it and, and try to to make things work as best as we can. But uh, you had a recent post, and this was the post that really triggered me to say, okay, Jeremy, we got to get on the podcast. Uh, it was, you know, what what is keeping me awake at night right now? And I'm a really positive person, by the way. I like I can always see the positive things, but I'm also a realist, and I want to look at the, the hard stuff, too. So uh, unpack that a little bit, Jeremy. What is keeping you up at night right now? Yeah, so this was a chart that was done. It was a research firm and a private equity company paired together to look at from basically late 2019 to release this in Q4. So it was basically through Q3, Q4 of 2022. How how much consumer credit card debt was the average U.S. consumer taking out? And what was their savings rate as a percentage of their income? Um and I'll share this, and I can I can resend this so we can put this in the show notes. But yeah, I'll, I'll link to your I'll link to your it's basically you know like a, a post or whatever. I'll link post. to that in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, there, there's this graph right that shows savings rate versus credit card debt. Yeah, yeah, but you're good. Yeah, and so as you see, as we go we go into the lockdowns and like early part of 2020, saving rates go through the roof. So the normal average floats somewhere around five to seven percent. During the COVID lockdowns, they go spike around 30, 33% in 2020. And that kind of, depending on where you see stimulus, it also goes into a little bit of 2021. And that crazy high rate, like probably, I don't know, you can never have too high of a savings rate, but it just in, in like way past the average. And then you see the amount in hundreds of millions of dollars of credit card debt just plummet from about 850 to 750. And so right from a like traditional, like personal finance, that's great things to see. People are paying down their credit card debt, really like actively managing their finances and then saving a lot of money so they have good cash reserves. So that like for us in the consumer economy, right, they're in a good place to spend. They've got savings that they can tap into, they've got credit card debt that they can tap into. Then the really thing that what keeps me up at night is as you see in 2021 and then what really flexes into 2022 is essentially just a hard reversal of those two graphs and just, you see it skyrocket in either direction. So by the end of 2022, you see that the personal savings rate had, basically it fell back down to somewhat normal levels and then like five to 10% and then plummeted down to 3%. And then you just see the credit card rate, the, the amount of the credit card volume skyrocket from that 750 area to north of 950 million, no, $950 billion, a big number. A really big number, number. number that you can't wrap your mind around. Yeah. Right. I, I think it's $950 billion, but that sounds insane to me. So I'm going to say $950 million, and then we can fact check me afterwards. But it just essentially goes skyrockets. And it was pre-pandemic, it was about 850 So like a meaningful step up north of 10, 15%. And so what really like keeps me up at night is it, it is billion. Billion. I just, I just, it is billion, right? It is 950 billion. So 950 billion, like really, really, like bigger than the GDP of probably a lot of other economies in the world. Right. And so, right, credit card debt isn't bad. Savings should be good, but there's, that's everybody's decision on what they should be doing. But really what more concerns me is knowing that like, I don't know about everybody else, but every credit card and their mother has offered me a credit card in the past three years. And if I had actually taken all of them out, I think my credit limit would have been something like 3x my actual income, which like 
is just bubbly. Like that's just scary. Like those are those are not good. And just knowing that not all consumers are that disciplined, my guess is reading the middle ground of that data that people are overextended. And so some other data point has really come out that 64% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And the yeah, and like when you just think about it, that means over half of every consumer that you could possibly touch is literally on paycheck to paycheck to pay for everything that they're working on. And then the second piece of that that really is like, oh boy, is a group, uh, there's, a, there's a sliver, a segment of that that makes six figures a year. Like they're making over $100,000 in gross income on an annual basis and still live paycheck to paycheck. And so what really concerns me is like when we take a step back, right, like lockdowns, tons of stimulus and inflation, and we can, I don't want to spend too much time on monetary theory, but when the government pumps even more money than people are already making, and they only yeah, place that they can really amounts spend. of money that have never been pumped into the system before. before. So like, yeah. it never happened before to that level. Right. Unprecedented scale, unprecedented frequency, because it happened multiple times. And at those points in time, all consumers could really push at a meaningful volume into maybe their homes was consumer goods. Right. So we have this like artificial one-time massive growth that's just really, really jacked up. Then on the back of that, consumers are like, well, I don't really want to change my spending habits now. And I actually like now I want to go and travel and do all these other things that are going to require me to spend money. And unless something else happens and, you know, like maybe there's I mean, there's plenty more brilliant people out there than me. Maybe there's some simple solve to this that we just haven't figured out yet. But at a certain point, like this has to stop. Like people have to either go back to savings or default on their credit card or stop spending money. I mean, maybe I'm like blatantly missing something, but to me, it's like, it has to be one of those three camps. And so like, just knowing that having your financial capital tied up in inventory is the kiss of death for any e-commerce retail business. Like to me, this is what I, I think I'm like really focusing on this year. And like every brand that I talk to and advise, it's like, how are you really, really optimizing your inventory? How are you being really, really thoughtful about your timelines to inventory, when you're placing POs, how much inventory you're carrying? Because at a previous company, and this is like a super extreme, just to prove a point, but like when I was at Dasty, we calculated weeks of turn, which is essentially like how many weeks will it take you based on your current sales velocity to completely sell out? Some brands we're seeing had hundreds of weeks, thousands of weeks of inventory. And yeah, that face is is a reaction (laughs) I made of like knowing that all of these factors are at play, like. You just have to be so nimble in these times. And I know that like that's for every operator out there. I'm sure you all just turn off the podcast and hate me because it's like the past two years from the supply chain have been a nightmare and everybody's been telling me to load up on inventory and get ahead of this. But to me, this is like where we're in a little bit of a pickle on our side of the just economy and sphere of like, yes, the proper thing to do was to load up on inventory, but now you might get stuck with too much if your consumer demand falls off. And so I think like the one piece of helpful advice, and I hope what everybody takes away from this is like, really start studying your customer's purchasing behavior. And I'm going to misuse an economic term, but I like the way it sounds of like, really start to understand your consumer demand curve. So if I'm going to study economics, I know it's the price and quantity, but really understand like what's the, what's people's, how often do people buy? How much do they spend when they buy? And are my customers the type of customers that like literally wait for a paycheck to afford my product? Or do they need to put it on buy now, pay later? Like all of those components, and I know you can probably buy some third-party data to like understand more of the financial habits of your customers. But I think that's going to be really, really important because you like 
the key has always been to tie your inventory buying to that as much as possible. And I don't think it's a skill a lot of people developed is you can just like blow out sales recently. But it's kind of like a little bit more of like, I don't know, like, I kind of like the old days when we used to like really have to manage merchandising and like the e-com manager side of the, the store. But I feel like that's really going to be the key for everybody this year. Yeah, I'm so glad you pointed that out. And I want to just kind of, kind of key in on, on a couple of things. Uh, one, you know, I think this all does go back to really understanding the consumer, understanding what they're experiencing right now and how that might predicting or thinking how that might uh, impact behavior going forward. Right. But knowing that 64 percent of consumers live paycheck to paycheck and it's not the lower income folks only. Right. It's people that are making over six figures. So even if you feel like you're reaching a, a higher you know, income earner, probably most of them are living paycheck to paycheck as well. So just knowing any little blip we start to see unemployment rates really go up that could cause demand to shift dramatically you know right now we got all these weird things happening but unemployment is really low right everybody's working or a lot of people are working right so uh so cash is still flowing but a lot of it is credit based and saving rates are going down to to your point and that will you can look at the the graph for yourself to see kind of how scary it is but uh but yeah and, and now this is like a a complete those things inverted right the the savings rate and the credit card spending those inverted recently but so did your approach to inventory that got flipped upside down too right because a couple of years ago it was all about just get in whatever we can get in because we'll sell it and and now you got to think about it right and so uh, one of the things we did and i actually wrote this article at the beginning of the pandemic it was about kind of understanding consumer behavior in a downturn because if you remember this is actually hard to kind of turn back the clock and remember but uh, you know, March and April of 2020 looked like things were going to be a disaster. <laughs> I right? know the world. Yeah. <laughs> those, were the, those were the first losing months that OMG Commerce ever had where we didn't plan on it, right? Like there was other CapEx times and whatnot. We spent a lot of money and we meant to. And so we lost money for that month. It was the first two months we ever lost money. But then we're like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, everybody's stuck at home. They can't buy, they can't spend money on anything else other than stuff online. And then things exploded, right? So, uh, but, I, but I wrote this article on, on how are consumers going to respond to a recession. And it's interesting, you kind of got these, these different buckets, and I've got this pulled up so we can kind of talk about it, right? There's some people that just slam on the brakes, right? Bad stuff happens, they slam on the brakes. There are other people that are like, they're pained, but they're patient, right? So they're feeling the pain, but they don't want to really like give up what they're doing. You got the comfortably well-off folks, right? And then you've got the people that are kind of live for today that are like, hey, caution the wind, whatever, we'll just keep spending money. I think to your point, there's a lot of people that are in the that live live for today or where they're feeling comfortably well off, where they start those spending habits and they don't want to adjust them. Right. They start those spending habits and just because inflation's there, they're not they're not spending less, right? They're going on trips, they're doing some of those things. Um, so I think just understanding that it doesn't take a lot to kind of shift things off a cliff, so to speak, in terms of demand and being ready for that. So um, tying this back to inventory, I think that's a really important piece. What are you recommending to merchants now? How should they be thinking about inventory? How many weeks worth of sell through? Like, what, what are some practical tips you, you'd, you'd give there? Yeah, so I would say that just-in-time inventory should be taken to probably as close as you can take it to like the extreme. And I know it's very different for every business because you have your PO timelines, you have your sell through and wholesale right. retail. And running out of inventory is bad too, right? Like we manage yeah. brands on Amazon and you, know, you run out of inventory on Amazon and you got to start some of your flywheel over again. So running out is bad too, but close to just in time is probably a really good idea. Yeah. And I think like, it's that right. Cause you really have to thread the needle. Like you can't go too far in either direction, but I think you really have to lean more towards like 
is a sellout existentially bad for our business and start like more on that side. But I think it's really more just speed. Like if I was running a brand, I would probably be checking myself through on my best products every day. And then I'd probably be checking myself through on my products once a week, if not multiple times a week, just because assuming that you have the right terms with your manufacturers, I probably would be placing POs more frequently. I know it's not as like cost effective and everybody's going to say, well, be more profitable and you're trying to do something less profitable. But I think this is actually where like you need to push your margins on every other part of your business so you can afford to spend a little bit more here just to give yourself the runway. Because what we never talk about, and I know people are probably going to tune out as to say cash conversion cycle, but like really how long does it take me to put dollars out of my business? How long does it take me to bring dollars back in? And inventory, especially if you're shipping from overseas, like you're automatically on probably a month to two month time frame as just like the fastest baseline. And so really being intelligent about that. I think the other piece is just like if you like more of a tactical thing, one of the best things we did when I was at a brand back in my time at Lumi is every week I'd have standing me with my ops team and our head of supply chain and logistics and I would literally go through our inventory and it would mostly be prioritized by our best sellers. But I would let them know, like, hey, these are the changes we're making to our paid media budget. These are the things that are going on promo. These are the things that we're going to feature on the site and email, blah, 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 blah. And then they would start adjusting. And if you don't have that already, add it to the calendar this week. If it's something you're already doing, maybe once a month, I'd probably pull that into biweekly, weekly, like really have that down. It's really a muscle that you have to learn. There's no perfect science. There's tons of tools that will tell you that they have this perfect algorithm and they help. But consumer, consumer demand is consumer demand. And so like, you really just have to get like, really dialed in there so that when you do have the shakes and when do, things do change, you can really adjust as quickly as possible. And I mean, Lululemon is already running a way we made too much sale. And I think it's actually a brilliant tactic of they're just ripping the Band-Aid off. It's going to be painful. People are talking about it a lot. What concerns me about what they're doing is they're running it at such a scale that they might actually get into a discount death spiral where they might like pull in so much consumer demand because they're making such a big deal out of it that then they're not going to hit their sales targets in Q2, 3, 4. So that actually like there's ways that you have to be very careful about it. But I think like we're just going to see a lot more people less aggressively discount top of funnel and less discount acquisition and more strategically discount like how do we move stuff, how do we clean stuff out. And actually, Drew Snocky, one of our close friends, like really had a meaningful post about this on Twitter or uh, about the past week of like, you really shouldn't be discounting the super loyal people that are like with you and are going to buy. And like, there's very strategic points at when to introduce those promos, how to introduce those promos. And you can do it fairly automated now. And I think we're just going to see way more adoption of that with like the couple of you know, like kind of how oil companies have like their burn off or like we're pump, we're pumping too much oil. So we burn a little off. So we don't ruin everything. Like, I think we're going to see more of those clearance sale type yeah. of just like move out of the system. when we That's, that's a good, good analogy. A little, little oil burn off, right? You got to get rid of some of that inventory and, and you got to rip the bandaid off. And, and the Lululemon the example, and I do want to talk about some other D2C brands that are doing really well right now. Cause I think we learned great from examples. Um, but let's talk about Lululemon really quickly. Obviously phenomenal brand. They crushed it during the pandemic. Everybody's wearing yoga pants, uh, you know, staying at home and, and whatnot. Um, but talk a little bit about that. So, so now they're discounting everything. Uh, what are your thoughts on that that discount death loop, right? And and any any more thoughts about Lululemon? But then also specifically, like, how do we avoid that discount death loop? 
Yeah. So, um, funny thoughts on Lululemon, but the good, the good soundbite is uh, actually Ezra Firestone has, I think, one of the most intelligent promotion cadences where he's just like, I really don't discount much on the top of the funnel. And every six, eight weeks, I'm running a shallow discount to just like get people over the line and clear out some inventory. And so, without knowing anybody's business or like the intimate inner workings, I would like just generally, I would say that that's a pretty good philosophy to have. Obviously, Tons of like nuances and cadences to everybody's business. Um, as far as Lululemon, the it's kind of like a contagion outbreak. I think is what I'm concerned by. Is right like if this is small scale and it's a small percentage of their inventory, specific products like kind of that classic fashion model where stuff goes out of season you're, and we you're buying last year's stuff. You're you're buying a sweater and it's June and it's fine. Like you, that doesn't hurt the brand. You're just yeah, you're getting rid of stuff. Right, exactly. Versus like, hey, we just launched a bunch of new stuff. We're putting a bunch out, and the stuff's only like six months old, and we're and we still think we have too much. The problem is, is that like, I, lo- I know that everybody loves to think that like you're going to promote a sale, and a ton of new customers are going to come in and buy. At least in my experience, it's your loyal customers and the people who are going to come back and buy anyway who just run through it and take as much inventory as possible, which is great for that short term like cash injection. The problem is, is that if you promote it too heavily to them, you're just, you're, you're removing your buyers in three to six to 12 months. And so like, yes, it solves your short-term problem in like survival. You can only play in the game if you survive. It's like, I want to be very practical here, but like then when you're like, oh, we produce all this inventory and we're trying to like hit our sales numbers for Q2, Q3 leading up into holiday, you're probably not, you're probably gonna have a lot softer sales then, and you're back to the same problem where we've produced too much, we don't have enough new customers to offload all of this inventory, and we've gotta go back to the same customers, and it just compounds over and over and over again, versus, I know nobody really likes to do this, but the strategy we've run at a couple brands is you move it in an, a retailer that's one of those like offloading retailers. Yeah. And I know that sounds bad and we need better branding for it, we should call them something better than like liquidation partners, but move it in a channel where it is maybe a, a net new introduction, right? Like I personally, when I was in college and had that much, I shopped at TJ Maxx and like we're introduced to products at super cheap prices. And, you know, five, 10 years later, I ended up buying them, but it was a way to like raise that cash out, get the cash back in your business. I think it's like and a I don't think cheap as the brand, right? We all expect to go to Marshall's or, T, or TJ Maxx or Ross, whatever. And like, there's just little one-off things here and there. And like, it doesn't hurt the brand. We're knowing we're getting it at a discount for a particular reason. And and yeah, maybe you do attract a net new customer, which is which is kind of interesting. And and to kind of key in on the point you're just making, it doesn't take very many of those cycles of discounting deeply and hitting your existing customers for them to be fully trained to just wait for the discount, like a c- couple cycles. And I'm, why would I ever buy, uh, pay full price for your goods? You know, at that point. And so then it's really hard to to back to back away from that drug of discounting. Yeah, because. The, that tough piece, right? What we talked about earlier, cash in, cash out. You're now you're having last cash in for the same cash out from like your inventory, your ad buys, and yeah, it just becomes a gnarly cycle where it's it's very hard to get out of once you're in that kind of vicious cycle downward. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. Well, who else are you following? Like, who who are some of the brands that you feel like are just crushing? And I know you may not have insights into their cash conversion cycle or how they're managing inventory, but but from what you can see. What D2C brands are just crushing it right now? Yeah, so for the brands that like they've publicly disclosed or there's some information there, I think the first one that always comes to mind is Liquid Death. 
Uh, we had a great time with them at Retain last uh, Q4 last year, and it's just such an interesting brand. Um, but they really have taken Wait a minute, off. Were they at Retain? Oh yeah, uh, they spoke the day that you weren't there. They spoke the oh, next day. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so I spoke. Um, yeah, so LA event last year, I had a blast. I loved it. I had no idea they were there. I mean, I couldn't have shifted my schedule. I couldn't have made it. But I'm so I'm so bummed now that I missed those guys. Yeah, I'll send you the recording uh, of me speech their SAP at retail, but. I think what they've done really, really well is, and I think they're, and the reason I like them is I think it's a good representation of the opportunity here, right? Of if you think we're in a session, if you think that tough times are coming, it makes business so much more difficult. But the winners not only win then, they dominate the next decades, yes. multi decades of their category, industry, the market in general. And I think that they're already in that mode and they're just doubling, tripling down. And it, doesn't seem like they're slowing down at all. So if anyone doesn't know what liquid death is, uh, I, I don't just like I don't know if you're under a rock or something. But actually, just really quickly, Jeremy, just really quickly, because I don't want to lose this thought. And I think it's important right here. Yeah, because we started a little doomsday with a couple of things, right? But here, here's the beauty of this conversation of what we're doing. If you make the right decisions now and get your inventory in, in a good spot and you get your marketing dialed in, which which liquid death does, we're going to talk about in a second then you could be successful now. And then if things do go south, you're primed to win. And, and you know, I've read a stat like, you know, more, more millionaires are created, you know, during a recession than any other time. And even during the Great Depression, tons of millionaires were created, right? So there's opportunity there. You just got to be ready for it. So, so I love that mindset, right? We're, we're making the right decisions now to, to give us the best chance of success now and for whatever may be ahead. So, okay, back to liquid death. For those that are living under a rock, what is it? Yeah, uh, and just to pile on to that point, because I think it's really important of like, it, also, if you just survive to be the number two, three player in your space, that's also a great business to run. Like, you don't have totally. to be number one. Totally. If you're in the right market, like, it could be millions, tens, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, even in the number two, two, three, four slot. There, there won't be 17 providers in a space anymore, but like, survival also is a big win here. But yes, yes uh, Liquid Death, the Super TLDR is. Uh, Super fresh water in a metal can, and everything is branded as like super punk metal, hardcore. Like, I don't call it aggressive advertising, but it's like insane. Where like one of their stunts was yeah. like you could sign your soul away to the company, or they infused Tony Hawk's blood into skateboards, and like all their ads are just like these really crazy, far out there, like but like fun, cool. Well, I guess it's very subjective. People either hate them, or they're playing polarizing very well. Um, but they've just absolutely blown up. They launched on D2C, very quickly moved into Amazon. Now they have a massive hotel, a wholesale expansion. They're in Whole Foods. They're in a ton of different providers all over the country. And I think like while everybody else I know who's been expanding has been having this channel debate and it's really tough time of like, do I spend here? Do I spend there? How do I just bu like budget my marketing spend? And it's, this is like kind of their, their speech from the conference last year is like, we just invest in stuff that we like and we like if it makes us laugh and we think it's gonna be a good time, we just put a bunch of money behind it. And like obviously they have all the data in the back end right, on the yeah, side, yeah. know what to invest in. But like they're thinking about it of just how do we grow the overall sales, how do we grow the overall brand? And it's just very funny of like Omni Omnichannel was the huge thing a decade ago, then it became all of you to see the past five years. Now everybody's back to Omnichannel, totally. and it's like we get so wrapped up in all of our, like, and I am so guilty of this, like all the specifics, like your job is just to get your customers to buy your product in any yes. channel possible from yes. anywhere possible and not from your competitor. And I think like they're one of the best examples of like 
they, they hit most of those typical growth paths of like scaled up, got into Amazon, really, really scaled up. And then their CPG brand. So like aggressively went into grocery and, and wholesale. So I think they're a big one. I think Dr. Squatch is another big one. Yeah. Um, I want to actually so, key in on, on liquid death really, really quickly. Um, I'm, I'm newer to, to liquid death. I did not know their story until, I don't know, less than a year ago for sure. But um, one of the things I can't remember if you wrote about this or if I read about it somewhere else, but they, they did a taste test, but it was a, yes. <laughs> a taser taste test, right? So, and I, I love this angle. They took some really negative reviews online. So some people saying it was like literally the worst water that ever tasted, you know, way overpriced. It's, you know, people were saying it was literally the worst. And so if I remember right, Liquid Death challenged these folks to a taser taste test where they gave, you know, Liquid Death plus other brands. And if they could, if they could pick out Liquid Death as the worst in that bunch, then they would win something. But if they didn't, they would thousand dollars. Yeah, thousand. Yeah, they did. They would get tasered, right? Or tased, and uh, they got they got tased, uh, which was which was pretty awesome and um, a little risky. I think most marketing departments and most legal departments would frown <laughs> on a taser taste test, but fits their brand, and I, and I love that they did that. Yeah, uh, a ski mountain in a ski resort in Utah did that also, and it was like an incredibly successful iPhone. They took a one star review, like put it on top of like their mountain, and all those things. Like, if you have a great product, it's actually like playing into the negative can work on like a very tactical level. Yes, because it shows that you're confident, like shows you're really confident in your brand, and you can't do that if you got a mediocre brand, obviously. But but uh, yeah, that's that's a super fun, super fun tactic. So, uh, liquid deaths. All right, let's let's talk Squatch. I love Doctor Squatch. I'm connected through their creative agency a little bit, Raindrop, but uh, yeah, love love those guys. Yeah, uh, another brand doing a lot of creative work. Uh, so for anybody who isn't familiar, it's all natural men's products of so soaps, deodorants, uh, a bunch of other like personal care products like that. Same model, launched on D2C, got into marketplaces, and now they're really, really ramping and scaling through Walmart and all those other channels. And I think what they've done really brilliantly is uh, they just really leverage tech well. And they're not leveraging tech just to like have everything in their tech stack. And I've been guilty of that of like playing with all the new tools, but like really dialing in their data so that I was talking with their, their head of econ there. We're like, they are testing and constantly know like when to send people to their econ store versus a partner or versus another website and like really dialing in that customer buying behavior. Because I think that that's a, especially if you come out of that D2C mindset or like just the Amazon mindset, my Amazon's a little bit different because people will buy from Amazon no matter what. But definitely a mistake I made when I was managing Amazon and DTC that were both seven, eight figure channels was certain people are only going to buy from those other retailers or those other places, no matter what. It's like such a waste of time to get Amazon buyers to buy from your site or Amazon buyers to buy from wherever new store you're launching it in. And the same respect, like they're going to just go back and buy. And I think like really just knowing the consumer behavior by channel and then doubling down and using their marketing, using their site to amplify those things. That isn't to say like they aren't driving a ton of revenue through their site and it's not a meaningful sales channel for them, but really leveraging all of those points. And that is a little bit of an eight, nine figure play. Like that is a little, it's more expensive. You need to have a team to facilitate all of that. But I think you can do it at the earlier stages also of like your one channel, multi-channel. It just really goes back to like so intimately knowing how your customers buy from you that you know when to pick which way to go. To me, like, I mean, their numbers have just exploded. Uh, disclaimer, they are a gorgeous customer. Um, but like the way, the way they've just like publicly seen that company take off, I think that they're another one where like they're going to go after the PNG Unilever in their space. They're really going to meaningfully scale up. And they've also 
running theme here have navigated the one channel, multi-channel add-in retail wholesale. And like, you really need to balance that because caps are going to get too expensive once you hit those 30, 40, 50 million a year thresholds where like, you just need to balance these things out. And you're probably starting to tap into audiences that are so big that you're selling to name your retailers, your product, like buyers and customers. Yeah, a couple, couple of things to kind of key in on there. Uh, love the Dr. Swatch brand. A little bit connected there. Uh, I spoke at a, a YouTube LA event in, in early 2020, so pre-pandemic, and some of the Dr. Swatch guys attended that. Um, do you know the, the guys at Raindrop Creative, Jacques Spitzer? And yeah. So they, they, they created the, the original Dr. Squatch ad that went viral, and it, it was like YouTube ad of the year and stuff. Uh, funny now, now Jacques is a friend, like we're connected, but they they'd taken a YouTube course I had taught like back in 2017. 18, uh, that's anyway. so cool. That's so yeah, cool. Like, really so little, little connection, but uh, love what Squatch is doing. And and yeah, it is interesting how Omnichannel is all the rage again when it, when it wasn't for a while. But I think it ultimately just comes down to what you said. We're, we're trying to remove friction and we just want customers to buy the way they want to buy, right? And And we typically buy in patterns, right? Those that buy only on Amazon, usually only buy on Amazon. Those, and it, it seems like with our family, we got, we've got stuff we buy on Amazon and stuff we buy in store, and like then you you rarely break out of that, right? And so, yeah, I think just understanding how do our customers wanna buy this, and, and we've gotta give them that option. And it's becoming more and more clear to me, and I'm sure it is to you, pure D to C is likely not the playbook, right? Like that, that's not the playbook typically for the success that, that most people want, right? You need, you need to think about marketplace. You need to think about in-store distribution. Um, really, I don't think we have any of our largest clients, those that are doing, you know, 50, 100, a couple hundred million that are that are just pure, pure D to C at this point. So. Yeah, and even all the companies that we like idolized back in the day that this whole model was built off of all have retail. Almost totally. all, yeah. Albers, Warby, Casper. Uh, Yeti, Casper. Well, Casper's just a bit of his own bucket now. But that is a good, that like, is a good point. That is a good point. But, like, but all of them, like they went to see, then they went retail. Most of them are selling on Amazon. Most of them are trying to either are in or are working on wholesale. Like they're all in the model where it's like, okay, we just need to go back to selling product and focusing on that. And D2C is a avenue and a channel. Yeah. And so I do think like kind of tying it back to what we started with, wholesale adds a level of complication because you do remove that piece. Right. of, right, like you got to buy longer inventory times, you got to ship it to them, they've got to sell through, then they pay you back and all those components. But that just, I kind of like, just, I think like to me, just double, triple down on the same principles, right? Like if you know you have longer times, really get as much data as quickly as possible, really dive in, really start to go a little bit looser. I know especially with those retailers, the fees and things of like stockouts not fulfilling their inventory is a little bit tougher to handle. So like you obviously have to keep that in mind when you make those decisions. But like you also just have to be mindful of, you know, maybe we shouldn't be selling in 25 retail partners. Maybe we should be selling in 10 or 20 or those other numbers. And I think now is just a great time to like shake things up. What actually rattles and falls off the trees versus what stays strong. And you can really meaningfully like streamline your business. I know that probably feels painful after two years of streamlining your business, but uh, just I really like keep moving and keep doubling down because the players that survive this, are going to be able to pick up a lot of amazing, amazing opportunities between talent, market share, potentially acquire other brands, launch new products. There's so many different components once all of this passes that, yeah, it's probably going to be a a rough 12, 24, who knows how long months. But 
once you're on the other side of that, like debt, as soon as the Fed drops rates, debt will become cheaper again. And then we're just back to growth mode. And so it's really just about making it through this period so that we can get back to the side where we can just really aggressively get after it. Love it, man. Love it. So aside from really getting getting control of your inventory and doubling and tripling down on, on things that are working, and I, I do love the idea of, yeah, you want to go multi-channel, but just focus on what, the, the things that are moving the needle and that are really working and, and kind of drop some of the other things. So focus, even though you're diversifying, you're still focusing, right? Um, what what other practical advice should you give? What should D2C brands be doing uh, going forward? Yeah, so someone who on the marketing side will love this one is stop worrying about your AMR acquisition costs. Stop worrying, it's not the right word. Stop having that be your North Star. Look at MER and just what it is like from a financial, like you're a CFO. How much do we spend on marketing advertising costs? How much do we sell, period? And then just have an understanding of what your margins are for wherever you sell. So you can have your numbers match up, right? Like your marketing spend as a percentage of sales needs to make sense from a P&L perspective. But everybody's doing these super complicated things of DTC and channel modeling and Amazon. And then how do we impact that against this, that, and the other. From every time I've dug into this and from every time we've analyzed the data, the more you can just blow out one marketing channel the more every other marketing channel does well and sells more. And like, it's nothing new. It's called the halo effect. It's been around probably for a hundred years. But like really go back to that. And like, I know it's really nice to have those like immediate feedback loops and that kind of dopamine hit when you know that like a channel crushes and it's like that immediate feel, but you're sacrificing something by not looking at the bigger picture. So that's definitely one thing. And I think the part two of that of why it's so important is because of all of this big economic picture, and if it plays out the way that I think it will, advertisers will have to pull out their budget either voluntarily or involuntarily. And while that's a tough thing to realize and you never want to be that advertiser for everybody else who's there, CPMs go down, it becomes less competitive, customers yes. buy, yes. and it's easier, it's easier from a cost perspective and from an average number of touches advertising perspective to get people to buy. And that's, to me, that's that magic unlock where you dominate because then you can spend more money and it goes back to the kind of like three or four years ago when we weren't going crazy trying to figure out how to get CAC into a reasonable place. I'm not saying we'll ever go back to that specifically. That was a very magical moment in time, but I think it will get better and things will loosen up and then you can really more aggressively put your foot on the gas, even if everything else isn't really like great, just because that will be less competitive. And so I think like that's why having that just like ready to go moment, ready to go with prep is so important because if you're looking at everything holistically and you see that crack and that opening, like take it and it's going to be great. And like, it's a tough thing and there's no way anybody's going to be right all of the time. But if you can, and you're in that top one, 10% of brands, like you're just going to set yourself up for a special, special moment in the company's history. Yeah, and and we actually just, I did a podcast with uh, uh, Raba Rahil from Triple Whale, and we talked about how you know you should stop obsessing over your ROAS, right? And you are not your ROAS. I think it was one of the lines that he used, which was pretty great. But uh, obviously, got to pay attention to ROAS. We do. We look we look at a cost on the Amazon side. Like we're 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 looking at those numbers regularly, but those aren't like the real numbers, right? The real numbers are your financial numbers. That That's your real business is the, the financial metrics that are there. And if you can dig into some of the minutia and some of the complexities of your numbers to unlock decisions and understand a little bit more where you lean into and what you lean out of, that's great. But uh, but you can overdo it for sure, right? And, and I think this is one of those things too that a lot of people do. And I was just, just thought of this analogy the other day. I, my, my son, my oldest is 21. 
and uh, he's selling solar systems door to door. So he he got like a bit of my entrepreneurial bug, and he doesn't want to have like a normal job, and he wants to make unlimited money and stuff, which is totally cool. And he's out there knocking on doors, which is awesome because it's really really difficult. And I'm like, hey, if you can sell that, you can sell anything, which which is true. But uh, they, they've got they've got setters and they've got closers, right? And he's actually he actually has a little bit of both, but. You can imagine someone you know that didn't know the business looking at it and saying, "We're paying setters an awful lot of money, but the closers, the closers are the ones bringing all the money in, right?" So let's just pay the closers, and I think that's what we're tempted to do. People be like, "Let's just run, you know, bottom of funnel search, and that's it, right?" And, and obviously, you would never look at a direct sales organization and say, "Stop the setters," because that's where the leads come from. But it's the same concept with marketing. It's just sometimes a little bit harder to see, right? You can see who's setting the appointments in a direct sales organization. You can't always see it uh, in a D2C brand, but it's the same concept. You, you unplug that, business dries up, and, and you're toast, right? So, so understanding, yeah, how do we make the most of what we have? And maybe that's really strict marketing budgets, and we're just we're trying to get the most out of that budget as we can, but knowing that you can't just shift bottom of funnel or things will dry up uh, before long. And, and then, yeah, wait for those CPMs to go down because that was one of the beautiful things about the early part of the pandemic. There, you know, viewership went up, so people on YouTube skyrocketed, on Facebook skyrocketed, and people pulled out of the auction. So it was like a heyday, man, for, for we, we, had, we had several brands scaling then with, you know, unprecedented CPMs for the time. So. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think the coolest thing, about, well, honestly, the coolest thing, pandemic was awful. But I think the interesting lesson from that time period is that was like a flash episode of what happened. Yeah. Is right, all those brands that were ready just hit the gas while everybody kind of just like, what's going to happen? What's waiting? We're not sure where our finances are. And I'm sure today and over the past couple of years, they've been in a significantly better position because they were able to really take advantage of that moment. Yeah, totally. Awesome, man. Well, this has been super fun. I could, I could talk for hours uh, with you about these topics. We are running up against time a little bit, though. Uh, before we uh, uh, sign off, though, tell us a little bit about Gorgeous. For those that don't know, I mean, Gorgeous is such an awesome success story. You guys have exploded in recent years. But what is Gorgeous, and then what do you specifically do at Gorgeous? Yeah, uh, thank you. I always have to talk about Gorgeous. So Gorgeous is the number one help desk in the e-commerce ecosystem, really, and we're the number one most installed help desk on Shopify. And so basically any customer support interaction, any customer experience interaction with your customer, we're the technology that connects you. So commenting on social, emails, SMS, voice, all those different platforms, WhatsApp will have just launched. Um, we're, we're that platform that your CS team uses to not only really drive efficient, great moments, but now innovative brands like Dr. Squatch, Princess Polly are actually driving revenue through us. So using us to essentially be kind of the closers for an e-commerce company, to our analogy earlier, where like live chat, people email in with questions, all those components. How do we answer them? How do we get them the right answer? And then how do we actually turn that potential problem question into a sales opportunity? Yeah, because really uh, every touch point with a customer, every interaction with a customer is an opportunity to, to grow that relationship and an opportunity to, to close another sale. Yeah, exactly. And maybe it's down the road, right? Like maybe you're investing for that retention play. Um, but yeah, and so really having a great time there. I run partner marketing, so all things with all of our partners, like amazing partners like you and OMG. Um, we're doing events, we're doing, we work with a lot of ambassadors and affiliates in the space as well, um, as well as all the other technology and agency providers where, yeah, we're just looking for fun things to do to just 
you know, help people figure out how to grow their store and, you know, navigate all the craziness that has gone on. And I'm sure we'll continue to go on over the next couple of years. <laughs> no doubt. But you guys do an amazing job. One, you put on great events. We've done some events together. And uh, just a lot of smart people at Gorgeous, man. A lot of brilliant, brilliant people at Gorgeous. Most of our biggest, fastest growing clients are using Gorgeous. And so we we give it the full OMG stamp of approval for what that's worth. And so, uh, yeah, man, hey, I, I strongly recommend people follow you on the socials. Where where are you most active? I see you on LinkedIn, but where where are people or where, where should people follow you if they want more Jeremy Horowitz in their life? Yeah, so uh, on LinkedIn, I try to post one helpful thing every day. So Jeremy Horowitz, H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z. And then I've got everything else that I'm working on linked, linked from there. Um, so yeah, that would be the easiest place to find me. Sweet. That's awesome, man. All right, good stuff. Well, hey, hopefully people are prepared. They're, they're going to be mindful of what could happen, but they're also not fearful, but inspired, right? Because that, that would be the message here. Don't be afraid. Yes. Be aware and be prepared, and then you can crush it no matter what, no matter what happens. So any other asks, any other call-outs, any other resources, anything else you want to mention before we sign off? Everybody have an amazing 2023. If there's anything you can help with, let me know. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate the time. Thanks. Have a good one. Awesome. And as always, thank you for tuning in. I would love to hear from you. What would you like to hear more of on the show? Guest ideas, if you have them, I'm open to that as well. And if you haven't done it, I would love that review on iTunes. Helps other people find the show. And with that, uh, with that, until next time, thank you for listening. All right, At OMG Commerce, we accelerate growth for some of the most loved brands in e-commerce, like Boom, Native, True Earth, Overtone, and dozens more. If your Google and YouTube ad performance isn't where it should be, if you're struggling with Performance Max, or if you're not scaling like you'd like on Amazon, then we have two ways to help. One, we have amazing resources that are free for the taking, like our top YouTube ads guide with lots of examples, our PMAX checklist, or our Amazon DSP roadmap, plus many more. Or hit us up for a free strategy session. So go on over to omgcommerce.com and click on Let's Talk to request that free strategy session or click on Resources and Guides and pick the guide that's right for you. And now back to the show.